Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein A Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein A Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. We've got a huge show for you now with a lot of great scientists coming on, and the first two are actually on the line with me already, two of my favourite co-hosts. Dr. Crystal, good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. And Dr. Lauren, hello. Hello. I'm very honoured to be, given the the calibre of our guest today, I'm very honoured that you even added us to that list. I'm honoured that you're broadcasting from your closet. It's funny, I actually said to my husband, I actually need to set this up more like a studio because this is getting a lot of Zoom action in this closet. I I know your husband well and I compliment him on some of the clothes I can see in the background. Good stuff, very nice stuff. Uh, It's fantastic. Now, a a shout out uh, from me to a few of the people I saw at... um, my local supermarket yesterday with, you know, some, shall I say, loose and inappropriate mask wearing and just a thought for them. Um, you know how you can breathe in through your nose and your mouth and it gets to the same location? The weird thing is it works the other way too. Um, so might want to cover up both of those holes or all three of them. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's put it that way. Uh, you know, it's just a little thought experiment there. Just think about that. Something to keep in mind, I think, you know, try and keep it, keep it nice, but um, wouldn't hurt. Wouldn't hurt, I think. Anyway, uh, we're going to get into some news. Sorry, I had to get that off my chest before I throw to you guys. <laughs> Dr. Lauren, do you want to start us off coming from the closet? Yeah, I most certainly will. will. So um, this one is for all the um, prehistory buffs in, in the audience, and not my, most of them are in my family. Um, so <laughs> I, um, I had to go to go this story because my, my son was very excited by this. Um, so published in Science in the last week was a study looking at the um, woolly mammoth. And so they found a woolly mammoth tusk, 17,000-year-old fossil, that was um, discovered in Alaska. And the really cool thing with tusks, which I didn't realise, is that as the mammoth grew and aged throughout its life, it steadily added new layers to the tusks. So it's almost like a tree trunk, right? So you had sort of these growth rings around the tusk, which can actually show you information about different stages from their life. And the really cool thing that this study has done is actually cut the tusk in half and they've looked at these different rings along the tusk length and study the different types of chemical elements within the state, within the length of the tusk. So they took 340,000 samples along the 1.7 metre long tusk, and they looked in particular for strontium, strontium and oxygen isotopes, and they were basically acted like GPS tags. So they could tell mm. where the animal had been at different stages in its life. So the way they did this is they looked at these different isotopes maps basically along the tusk and then they mapped that with the known isotope variations across alaska and the really cool thing with that is that they don't vary much over millennia so the isotope um landscape i guess that you see in different parts of alaska at the moment is the same as what it was seventeen thousand years ago so they were able to then basically show that the mammoth had walked over seventy thousand kilometers during its life but it lived for 28 years and then they were able to even 
you know, more finely honed down and say that in its early life, the mammoth was doing repeated long distance journeys across similar sort of paths. And so it said in that first 16 years, it was doing a lot of migration with the herd. But then when it was 16 years old, the pattern became a lot more variable. And so that was, they think, a time when the the, um, mammoth actually left its herd and began, like, you know, roaming freely. And then in the last 18 months of its life, the movement decreased significantly and it stayed in one area of Alaska for the last 18 months. And they also found in the tusks certain biomarkers which show that the animal was starving. So they could then say that that that, that was probably the cause of its death. So amazing information just from the tusk. I, I find that absolutely <laughs> extraordinary. And the first thing, just to clarify again what you said there, Dr. Mm. Lauren, I, I like to think of myself as pretty good at cutting up vegetables. You know, I can slice them pretty thin. But how many, sorry, how many slices did you say they took from a, so, a one-metre so, so tusk? Actually, yeah, so they actually took the tusk and they just cut it lengthways once. So yep. they basically just broke it open. Yep. And basically the different layers look almost like um, ice cream cones. So when the mammoth was born, you know, the tip of the tusk is from when it was first born and then yep. the base of the tusk is, is when it died. Um, and so they just then took samples at 340,000 locations along <laughs> that 1.7 metre. So, yeah. So that was the number of 340,000 locations. 340,000, yeah. That's yep. – I hope it was all the metre in some way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like – Wow. It sounds like a lot of very thin uh, microscopy slicing to get those isotope yeah. maps. And, it, and it's amazing to imagine the geography that was covered at that time, as you say. Mm. I was imagining, did they say whether it was a female or male mammoth? It's a male. And, and so that was why they were very excited about that data and about that 16-year age point for him because that's apparently what they thought mammoths did. They thought that they stayed in a herd until they were about 15 or 16 years old. And then the males would leave and, and roamily by themselves as they got more mature. So it's, you know, sort of evidence that that, that theory is correct. Yeah. I mean, I, I wonder, I, I, I'm not across this, but I wonder how much that original mindset around mammoths is sort of based on our modern day elephants and how they yeah. they do things. And, and you know, you, you think maybe that does track across, but actually having like, I mean, this is this is the equivalent of just stapling a GPS to this thing and, and recording the data, you know, tens of thousands of years later. It's extraordinary. Yeah, yeah. And, and it really is amazing. And, and it's even these um, bigger ramifications because what they're saying is they could map, you know, the areas that it was moving mm. and then they were able to predict that they were probably areas that were be- beginning to become encroached upon by forests during the end of the Ice Age. And so the habitat was shrinking. And so that this, again, is evidence for why they might have gone extinct. Um, but, you know, being able to actually geographically map where that mammoth was moving is just amazing. It's phenomenal. I want to get myself a narwhal tusk if there's one from a, a narwhal that's no longer living lying around and see if we can do the same yeah. thing in the oceans. I think this is just a, it's a phenomenal piece of work and, you know, bravo to the group who've, who've done it. I, hopefully they'll get to do more um, more mammoths and see if the, the males and females both do the same sorts of things, if there's they, any differences there. But they, actually, they actually did talk about that and said the biggest challenge is they can do it, but they have to obviously cut these mm. fossils in half to do it. Yep. And so, you know, obviously a lot of the museums are, you know, rightly a little bit <laughs> nervous about that. <laughs> 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 Not letting them at it with a chainsaw. Yeah. Um, 
Fair but yeah, enough. it would be it would be amazing. So many different animals, you could do the same sort of technique. Yeah, great story, Dr. Lauren. Great story. That's um that's definitely one of my favourite ones in the wild. I think being able to track mm. that that very very old beast around like that is phenomenal. Yeah, Doc- very cool. Dr. Crystal, what do you got for us? Uh, this week, Dr. Shane, I learned a new word. Oh. Um, and the new word that I learned has um it was a uh, kleptotrichy. Oh, okay. That's Klepto meaning to steal and trichy meaning hair. And this word, kleptotrichy, has been coined by researchers to describe the activity they've observed in birds where birds are stealing hair from mammals um, and using it to line their nests. And and the fact that birds use hair to line their nests isn't new, Mm. but it's always been thought that um, that the hair had been scavenged, that it had been taken from dead animals or it had been found sort of shed into the environment. But these researchers actually have observed birds nicking hair directly from live animals by landing on their backs and just plucking a bit out. And they thought, well, is this a new phenomenon? And so the researchers... Uh, went through the published literature and they could only find 11 examples of this behaviour that had been documented in peer-reviewed research. And so they found examples in North America where the bird, the titmus, had been scavenging hair from a raccoon, crows had been seen to pluck hair from cows, and here in Australia, honey eaters, the honey eater birds, have been observed to pluck hair directly from koalas. Oh, my God. They only found 11 examples in all of the research and they thought, oh, I wonder if there's a wider observation here. And so they turned to citizen science and they went and looked uh, for examples on that venerable publication platform, YouTube, and went and found examples where people had filmed birds plucking hair out of animals and they found a much wider variety of examples and being able to write up an observational paper about this behaviour. And there's all sorts of theories as to why the birds would want to do this. You know, obviously, you know, ideas like wanting to insulate their nests, you know, if they wanted to keep the nests, the eggs warmer, but also whether or not the odour from the hair actually kind of would help ward off predators from the nest. Like if you if, if, a, if a predator was approaching the nest and it smelled a raccoon, it might stay cool, for example. So, you know, there's all kinds of observational examples and this paper has been um, written up in the journal Ecology with a fantastic title, What the Pluck. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I'm wondering whether, is it, so is this the origin of the drop bear story? I mean, is this, is this a scenario where you've got yourself a, a koala happily sitting up in a gum tree and then someone comes and rips a hair out of its head, it falls out of the tree super bloody angry and someone's gone, what is that? And hence we get the story of the drop bear. I think this is where it might have started. Actually, surprisingly, the koalas in the videos don't seem to be fucked, to be honest. (laughs) This is is probably the most remarkable thing about these videos is that often the animal whose hair is being plucked really doesn't seem to notice. So the birds must have um, uh, sort of crafted and and refined their technique of hair plucking over many, uh, many generations. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, they're not going to be the next beautician clinic, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, they're not going to. Uh, I, I have, I have my eyebrows done by honey eaters. Yeah. <laughs> 
They're not going to like me. directly, the natural way. Yeah, I'm no value to these birds because of my, you know, what is, <laughs> of course, true. my long, my long-term my long strategy. And some people who know me know that I started this strategy 20 years ago by increasing my stress and testosterone levels to have a smooth head so that when I do Zoom calls, I could use a virtual background perfectly. A little hint there, folks. If you're doing Zoom calls and you want your virtual background to work perfectly, have as little hair as possible because <laughs> it, it, it makes it appear as though you're actually there. I, I trick a lot of people. They go, are you really in the studio? I'm like, yes, I'm really in the studio at 9 p.m. on a Tuesday. You know, yeah. You're committed. You're very so, committed to the show. But, uh, yeah, but no, they wouldn't be able to get any of – there's not much left for me, sadly. But that's the way <laughs> – well, it's, it's so fascinating. I think, um, you know, that, that myth of – you know, we always had that idea idea of what was in the nest was just rubbish they'd found lying around and now we know they're taking it live they want the fresh stuff which mm-hmm. is um, yeah, yeah. Which, which i think adds adds a lot to the kind of theory as behind why they might be wanting to get something plucked fresh um it's pretty interesting hey dr shane i wanted to ask you about something i've mm-hmm. been reading a bit about the mars rovers oh yeah and apparently um it's perseverance the mo- the rover that's there right now mm-hmm. well they're both failed with Oh, they're both still there. Yep. But, but Perseverance failed with some rock sampling this week. I heard something that suggested that, that Perseverance wanted to try and drill into some rock, but it was too crumbly and they didn't end up getting it in the vial. Do you know what happened there? Yeah, I don't know the details, but I haven't read exactly what went on, but I think there was something that wasn't quite right. So, But, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a series of these that's going to be done. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's hard. You don't know until you drill, right? What you're going to get? Yeah. So yeah. yeah, I was I was reading that um, that when they did the rock sampling and it was too so they they drilled in and they they were trying to take a core of rock mm. and it was too crumbly to get in the vial, but they saved the vial anyway, and so yep. now they've got a really nice sample of Martian atmosphere to yep. uh, analyze. Yep. <laughs> and look, the, the the hope to get some of these you know these return capsules, getting them back to Earth, which is not the rover's mission actually. Its mission is to grab them and store them for a later mission to bring them back. But you know we only have a few pieces of Martian rock here, and they're because you know of impacts that happened to Mars, and the shrapnel from those impacts somehow got to Earth, which is kind of amazing. Um, and a few of these these rocks managed to get to Earth, but that's all we've got. Whereas we've got, you know, we've got bucket loads of moon rock um, that the Apollo astronauts brought back, but we don't have any Mars rock. So it's sort of one of those things that getting these samples is pretty important. I, I'm still I'm still blown away by the little helicopter. I'm still mm. blown away by the helicopter flying around, you know, quadcopter thing flying around on Mars. Well, actually, not a, yeah, it's, a, it's amazing. It's amazing that they did that. So I remember us all being excited when that first little flight happened, and now it's just flying off into the distance somewhere and, you know, doing its <laughs> thing. Yeah, I think it's... I- I think I was reading it's done like 11 flights now and when it yeah. flies over and takes pictures, um, all the NASA scientists start playing Spot the Rover in the <laughs> yeah. picture because they get yes. this picture and they're like, oh, 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 where's it is. the rover, where's the rover? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's amazing. It'll be, it'll be amazing because it means we can use that technology to explore beyond, you know, the region of any sort of mission um, to see what's interesting in the future. So anyway, we must away. We have uh, guests uh, waiting on the line. So Dr. Crystal, uh, Dr. Lauren, thanks so much. Good to chat. Amazing stories. Um, some of the best news we've had uh, this year. And we're going to go to a track and see you guys soon. See you next time. Thanks, guys. Have a happy, have a happy Sunday. Thanks, Crystal. Okay, folks, we're going to take a bit of a break for some music. And when we come back, we'll be speaking with a member of Melbourne Museum about one of their amazing new exhibits, which hopefully we'll all get to go and visit soon. Triple R. Triple R. 
Uh, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein the Gogo on 3RRR. On the line with us now is Dr. Ken Walker. He's a senior curator of entomology at Museums Victoria. Good morning, Ken. How are you going? Good morning, Shane. How are you? It's great. It's a beautiful, beautiful day here. It is indeed. Well, I can't see it from inside. Actually, I can. There's a, <laughs> I've got a window here and it looks like the sun is shining through. So that's that's a good thing. Now, I have to say, every time I drive to Triple R, which is one of my only outings, you know, during uh, the lockdown yes, days, which yes, so I, you know, yes. it's, it's extra special to come here. Driving along the uh, Tullamarine Freeway, I look up and there is this uh, big sign for the Treasures of the Natural World exhibit at uh, the museum. And I think I must get along to that. And then I realise, you know, the you museum's can't. shut. But I thought it would be good. You know, we, I think this is one of the things where I'm, I sort of advise people, make a damn list. And when we get yes. into, you know, I, I, we, we should more think of, you know, when we're out of lockdown and, and yes. have that list yes. ready to go so that on day one you can start pounding it. Bang! You get out there straight away. Absolutely, but you've uh, you've been heavily involved in this exhibition. Um, tell us a little bit about it. What's the? I, I know the museum brings in a number of uh, special exhibitions. You know, depending yeah, on what it is. Um, what's, yeah. What's what's the deal with um, this one? Talk us through what what sort of things are there. Well, believe it or not, um, I'll just go back and say we actually bought the, uh, the all the items uh, in January 2020 oh, wow. uh, for, for an opening <laughs> in May 2020. Then we tried again in, in June. But anyway, we're finally open, although we're closed at the moment. Uh, we're open until the 16th of January. Okay. So there's lots of, lots of time to come yep. and see it. Now, listen, um, basically what it is uh, is that the Natural History Museum of London has got 80 million specimens. It's the largest museum in the world. And they've chosen 200 objects uh, to show us some of the moments in time, some of the specimens themselves, and some of the people that changed their Western concepts of science and how we understand the natural world today. So they've distilled it down to kind of 200. And these are just iconic objects. It's the kind of thing that even I still get goosebumps going in. I think, you know, you'd have to travel the other side of the world and you'd be very, very lucky to see some of these things. Um, I really, I guess the exhibition is broken up into six parts. There's what they call the collection builders. These are the people who built you know, large collections which helped form the foundation of the Natural History Museum. Then there was the, um, the magnificent museum builders, Sir Richard Owen. Then there were the thinkers. Now, the thinkers really take us from the 16th to the 18th century, and it was a great time when global trade was going on, and so lots of specimens began to be collected. And there was a move away from traditions of faith and tradition to actually collecting, uh, to making observations, critical thinking, the germination of science. Mm. So there's a great section around that. Uh, then there's the Romans, people who went to great distances to be able to find things and bring them back. And then at the very end, there's life's in it, we're in it, and there's still lots to learn on that. So, so as I said, it takes us from the age of reason up to now. Yeah. Now, uh, how many did you say they've got in the UK? Two, 80 million. 80 million. And they gave us 200. That's generous. Let's yep. yeah, be yeah, like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wonder if they missed them. Um, <laughs> that's a lot of specimens. <laughs> and, you know, in, in terms of the um, – I mean, how do you, as you say, you, you've you've had these for a little while now. Yeah, do, yeah. Do, do some of these specimens require very specific handling and or maintenance? I can imagine some of them are probably pretty fragile by this stage. Well, that's interesting you should say that. Um, originally in the contract, the uh, Natural History Museum, we're going to send out a whole team of staff mm. to actually install the objects. And, of course, with COVID, that all got, um, you know, put into abeyance. Um, Australia allowed two people from the Natural History Museum to come out. They spent two weeks in quarantine in the city. They came on down. 
but we did a lot of it by remote, by Zoom installation of that. Yeah, look, they are very fragile. Uh, some of these things, you know, obviously, well, the fossils are fine. They go back uh, 500 million years. Yep. But some of the objects like the Queen Alexander's bird wings, uh, the largest butterfly in the world, we were not allowed to handle it. We were wow. not allowed to handle it. So we were looking if they if we couldn't bring it across people from NHM, we had to put in our own specimens and that's so there was about six specimens that we couldn't do. One of the examples is one of their books. They've got the oldest book in the whole museum. It's from 1640, I think from 1469, 30 years after the invention of the printing press. So wow. we were not allowed to handle, you know, some of these things like that. It, the, the museum obviously is, is climate controlled, but the very important thing is the light lux level. Yep. If it's high, uh, then you get fading as specimens. So we've got it about, it's, it's called the 75 lux. So, so lots and lots of of, of regulations, but we did have fortunately two natural history staff to come out. Yeah, that's great. Now, I'm going to have to immediately ask a question about the lighting because I'm an old optical physics yeah. guy. Do, yeah, do you yeah. have to control the frequencies of light that you're allowed to use as well, or is it just the intensity? Just the intensity. It's the intensity, yeah. Um, for example, the uh, a, lot of, a lot of the butterflies have got pigments, a lot of the specimens mm. have pigments, and they just fade with UV light. Uh, interestingly, there's a group of butterflies called the morpho butterflies, which are from South America, and they uh, create light through refraction, so they can't fade. Yep. So there's, there's a story there about research going on for paint companies. If they can develop a paint, that uses refraction that will never fade. Yep. Uh, so you know, this is in the very end, but, you know, life's in it. There's lots of things for us to learn on that. But there's a lot of fragile things indeed without it. I tell you, there's a very interesting aspect of this exhibition, which we've never, never done before. Normally we build a, an exhibition, a particular touring exhibition, with MDF, uh, all the structures of that. We've used 2,000 recycled cardboard boxes. Oh, yep, yep. As the frame, you know, now obviously where the specimens are, they've got a perspex lid and an aluminium frame. But, yeah, so this is something quite new. We're going to try this cardboard boxes. And at the end of the exhibition, they'll all be recycled as well. So, That's fantastic. Uh, so, yeah. How did, how did that conversation go down with, uh, you know, the, the, the Brits with their white gloves on that wouldn't let you touch anything? Did you say, hey, yeah, look, we've got some, we've got some old beer uh, boxes here. I, know, that we, <laughs> you know, we're, I hope and that's okay. <laughs> As we drink our crates of beer, we've got to put them in the <laughs> Look, they were, they were over the moon with it. They really thought it was an innovative idea. Because actually what happens is we just get the specimens yep. and then everything else is up to us to design the layout and everything like that. So, uh, so yeah, we decided to try cardboard boxes. And then as a kind of divider, there's a cotton scrim uh, that comes down. So, look, it, it looks really, really nice. Um, uh, there are places that when Sir Richard Owen built the Nat uh, the Natural History Museum in 1881, he wanted to be a cathedral to nature. Yep. And as you first walk in, there's these kind of overarching branches, so in, in cardboard, obviously, which again gives you that idea of a cathedral mm. nature and that. But uh, it's just a wonderful exhibition as you move through. One of the things that people don't, I think, will maybe pick up is the links between various people. I'll give you an example. Um, you are a bit of a geology um, nut, I understand. Yep. That, so you yep. like the Guilty. geology. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so um, you've heard of Sir Charles Lyell. Yep. Well, uh, well, he. Well, it was Sir Richard Owen who introduced Charles Darwin to uh, to to. I beg your pardon. It was Lyell who introduced uh, Darwin to Owen, and Owen then identified all of the South American fossils that Darwin had collected. So there's lots of links mm. in between with the exhibition on that. But it's interesting that um, I'm sure you know the story uh, about Owen and Darwin, how they they fell out very very badly. 
and you do the exhibition, there they are side by side. <laughs> side by side. Well, I just think, I mean, some of these things too, you know, when people start thinking through this, I mean, you, you made that comment about some of the butterflies' wings not being yeah. susceptible to that lux problem because they use refraction. I mean, just for everyone out there, you know, we think about the way a ra- rainbow is formed, you know, yes. when we split up the, the colours that we have in white light in, in, a, in a droplet of water and that helps us make a rainbow, and there's no pigment in there to be spoiled. And no, it's exactly, right. exactly the same process in these butterflies' wings, and I know some of them have even more complex um, sort of photonic sort of structures in them as well, which is incredible. But you're hearing that yeah. and thinking, okay, that specimen's not susceptible to that. It's just, yeah. it's just fascinating. So um, we've only got a minute left, Kim, yeah. but um, in terms of the... I suppose the way in which people can interact with the exhibit now—it's you know—it's it's a special week for science this week. Yes, uh, can yes. people do anything now pre the museum being back open? We have a number of series, webinars, and scientist experts on uh, to be able to talk to on that. So if you go to our website, you'll see there's lots of online activities to be able to engage with. So particularly heavily so in Science Week and that. I'm giving a talk next Saturday and there's talks almost every day and that. So uh, unfortunately, hopefully next Thursday, people will be able to get into the exhibition. But as I said, lots and lots of stuff going online. Yeah, look, I'm, I'm excited to, uh, I know I'm, I'm going to come along and have a bit of a look. I was hoping to do it before this interview, but uh, <laughs> it's all right. I think that'll be fine. I love he- hearing the stories and, and your jovial nature with regards. So I just have this image of these 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 British creators coming in and you stand there going, I've been doing this forever. What do you mean I can't touch it? Um, and I think you, you take it very well. It's obviously a, an incredible um, exhibition of old old specimens. I, I've got to get along and see this book, um, anything yes, that dates yes, back that far. Yes. Um, yeah, yeah. Must be. It's, it's a, it was from. Uh, it was written by originally by Pliny the Elder. Yep, yep. Um, started in, in AD seventy seven. Yep. And really, I guess you could call it the world's first encyclopedia. Wow. Wow. You know, so, and it's a big, it's a thick book. It's not something small on that. So, uh, so look, lots of iconic yeah. objects in that. Um, Fantastic. So yeah, look, please come along and enjoy it. All right, folks, it's the Treasures of the Natural World exhibit. It's at Museum Victoria. It will be open. Uh, it's open now, but it'll be open soon. Um, Ken, thanks so much for chatting to us, and uh, good luck with the exhibition once it's uh, finally available to the public. Thanks, Shane. Bye-bye. Folks, that was Dr. Ken Walker, Senior Creator of Entomology at Museums Victoria, and a great exhibit there that hopefully we'll all get to go along to soon. We're going to take a break now for some important station announcements, and we'll be back in just a moment talking to someone who works with spiders all the time. And if you know me, as you may have from years gone by, you know this is going to be a very, very challenging interview for me. Triple R. Welcome back, everybody. We're listening to 3RRR. Here you are on the science program, and we have our second guest on the line now. Her name is Dr. Samantha Nixon. She's a postdoctoral research officer in the Australian Research Council Centre of Excellence for Innovations in Peptide and Protein Science at the University of Queensland. Good morning, Samantha. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, Shane. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you on. I've seen you on Twitter many times because of all the pictures of spiders that you put up and your interesting journey. Now, you work in venom research now, but you, you were quite arachnophobic at some stage. Tell, tell me about that because I, I am still arachnophobic. Yes, it's hard to believe, but I genuinely suffered from severe arachnophobia, and now I'm a spider advocate and venom scientist. Um, And actually, it was that fear of spiders that led me down this path. I was really, really curious about how, you know, these things that I was so afraid of 
um, could have these incredibly complex venoms. And spiders actually have the most complex venoms of any venomous animal on the planet. Hmm. So I decided to, um, you know, just buck up my courage and volunteered in the lab and volunteered to actually take care of the venomous animals there. Um, So basically gave myself exposure therapy to the spiders. Um, And as I started working with them, I named them. So I named my tarantulas, you know, Beyonce and Whitney Houston. (laughs) Um, And then I realized that Whitney Houston was actually a boy. So then he became um, the spider form formerly known as Whitney Houston. Um, And as I was working with these spiders, I realized, you know, they actually are more afraid of me than I am of them. And the majority of spiders are actually harmless to us. You know, Mm. we estimate that less than half a percent of all spider species are actually dangerous to humans. But what's really cool is their venom can actually hold the key to developing new medicines and new technologies. Yeah, interesting. Now, when when you when we talk about things like arachnophobia, I mean, I, I know when I, I encounter spiders, most of the time I'm okay. But, you know, if one was crawling up my arm and I wasn't sure, my, I, I, I get the feeling there's a part of my brain at the back that's doing most of the, uh, most of the reaction there on my behalf. And uh, presumably this is a sort of, a, an evolutionary I like to think of myself as a little bit evolutionarily uh, higher on the on the ladder because I'm scared of spiders is, is that what is that the scenario I mean if we sort of develop this as a protective mechanism I, I would assume that's what it is and you know there's been some research because arachnophobia is one of the most common phobias mm. in the world it's actually more common than a fear of snakes right realistically snakes present actually a much bigger risk to us than spiders do. You know, there's 50,000 species of spider and less than half a percent are dangerous. There's only about 2,000 species of venomous snakes and actually the majority of those pose a mm. uh, pretty serious risk if we're bitten by them. Um, of course, snake bite here in Australia is, is not such a big problem. We have very good anti-venom and very yep. good um, sort of snake awareness. Um, but, yeah, so there's some really cool research and apparently some psychologists have figured out that it's the way that spiders move that trigger that severe <laughs> phobia. It's so alien to our system yep. of locomotion that something in our brain goes, oh, no, I don't want any part of that. Yeah, it's weird. I'm okay with octopuses, though, so I don't know. Um, but, yeah, even you just talking about them, I'm, I'm feeling a little bit, you know, a little bit out of sorts. Um, but with the venom, now, obviously, spiders use this as a mechanism to subdue their prey. But what is it used for in, in our case? Because often when we think of venom, we think of something that's toxic to us. But how can it be a benefit? Yeah, great question. So spider venoms have evolved over hundreds of millions of years. You know, spiders were actually here 150 million years before dinosaurs were. Mm. So their venoms have had a huge amount of time to become these really complex cocktails of different molecules. Now, some of those are fast-acting, potent and selective. And for me, those are very good characteristics for drugs. So spider venoms are kind of this this huge natural library for drug discovery. And the majority of their toxins target the nervous system. So, um, and as you say, they really evolved to 
primarily catch insects, hunt their prey. So what we've been doing is trying to harness those um, neurotoxins to develop new insecticides, for example. Spiders are the best, you know, insect killers on the planet and we urgently need new insecticides. Um, So we've been developing venoms for that. And then we also started looking into, well, if these, these toxins target different parts of our nervous system, can we use them to treat nervous system disorders? So we can harness some of those neurotoxins to shut down the parts of the brain that are too active and causing seizures for epilepsy, for example. Mm. Or we can use them to shut down pain signaling pathways to treat chronic pain. Sometimes those venoms cause really severe pain, so they're not very good drugs. But what they can be really useful for is understanding how that pain signaling occurs. And so, for example, by studying an African tarantula venom, which causes really bad pain, we were able to identify a new pain target that we didn't know existed. And it turns out that that pain target is really important for irritable bowel syndrome. So by understanding that molecular basis, now we can go on to develop new medicines for irritable bowel syndrome pain. Yeah, fascinating stuff. And and with the the idea of using this as an insecticide, it's fascinating to me, like we've generated a lot of insecticides over recent decades. And in many cases, the their sort of efficacy or their ability to continue working is dropping off and we have a problem with that but as you said spiders have been you know getting this cocktail right for literally hundreds of millions of years is is there the likelihood that these quite different approaches from spider venom won't see that same sort of problem with regards to you know resistance from the insects we're trying to take care of That's really the hope, actually. Um, One of the big differences between using the spider venom sort of insecticides and current insecticides is that the spider venoms are incredibly specific for molecular targets. You know, they've had these hundreds of millions of years and you can get species selected selectivity so you know the toxins might only work on the crop pests but leave the honeybees for example and that's something that we're really obviously really important for developing new insecticides and because of the um, nature of the molecular interactions from spider venoms they actually um, seem to be a lot better at avoiding resistance than Mm. our current insecticides yeah interesting now um before i let you go of course i've got to ask do uh, this whole i don't even want to use this term but milking the spiders is that the term we use and and how the devil do you do that (laughs) it is called milking yes that's how we collect the venom um and so if you've ever seen snake venom being collected it's kind of similar to that Um, The difference is that spiders are smaller and they don't want to give up their venom if they don't have to. Mm. It takes a lot of energy for them to produce it. So for spiders, biting is really their last resort. So I usually work with tarantulas because uh, tarantulas are bigger spiders, so you get more venom. Um, And basically, I have to pick the spider up by the back of their head, kind of where the legs join. Um, and get them to bite down on a tube. Now, as I said, they don't want to give up their venom if they don't have to, so I give them a very small electric shock to the muscles over the venom gland. It doesn't hurt the spider. It's just enough for those muscles to squeeze down, and then the venom comes through the fang into the tube. But I have to collect from literally hundreds of spiders to have enough uh, venom to study. So whenever I find an active molecule, it's very important that we isolate just that individual molecule and that we can make it in the lab. You know, I'm not going to be 
collecting millions of spiders to develop the next um, insecticide. We have to be able to make it chemically. Um, But then for funnel webs, they're the exception to the rule. So obviously funnel webs are one of those spiders that are dangerous to humans and we have to be very careful. So I don't pick them up in my hand the way that I would a tarantula or an orb weaver or a huntsman. Um, but they are actually drip venom from their fangs. So we don't understand why funnel webs have decided that venom is not a precious resource. Uh, All I have to do is very gently tap the funnel webs with a set of forceps and they rear up into what we call threat display. So they make themselves look big, they're waving their legs around, they're flexing their fangs at me. Sometimes they almost make a hissing sound. Uh, And they're saying, back off, this is not a fight you're going to win back off. Um, And then they literally drip venom from their fangs and I can suck it up with a pipette um, and Off you go. both myself and the spider are perfectly safe. My God, it's uh, <laughs> it's fascinating stuff. So we, we, with all the holding and, and milking stuff, you lit- you you are one of my heroes now, Samantha. I love it. Um, you've just you've just cast my mind back to a situation where my grandfather in Malua Bay, just south of Batemans Bay, was driving into the garage and there was a massive funnel web on the garage door, and and the garage door was going off the gears. Ah, don't worry about it. That's fine. We got heaps of those. We were from Melbourne. We were freaking out. Um, but this this is amazing stuff. I'm I'm so impressed that you've turned you know a phobia into essentially your career and doing all this great stuff thanks so much for chatting to us today on on einstein and gogo and and good luck with the ongoing work it sounds fascinating and and just hearing about that long period of evolution of of spiders and their venom is, is just phenomenal thanks so much thank you folks that was dr samantha nixon from the university of queensland in a moment we're going to be talking to another very famous scientist you may have heard of and uh we're going to play some tunes in the interim so enjoy triple r Welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3RRR. I'm Dr. Shane. If we haven't met before and on the line with me now is Professor Alan Finkel. Good morning, Alan. How are you? Good morning, Shane. I'm, I'm pretty well. I'm in Melbourne in lockdown. And you know what? We're used to it and we're coping very well. Yeah. Now, of course, you were our chief scientist for Australia between 2016 and 2020, which is obviously a pretty big job. Um, tell us a bit about that. What was, what was that like day to day? Well, I've got to tell you, it was something that I could not have anticipated. I, I enjoyed it thoroughly. I had five years in the role. The, If you look at the contract, which you don't do more than mm-hmm. once in your life, but if you look at the contract, it actually is for the chief scientist to give advice to the prime minister, the science minister, and other ministers when asked in the areas of science, research, and innovation. That's yep. number one. Number two is to assist the government in any international science engagement. And number three is to um, communicate science research and innovation to the public. It's really the first and the third that was significant. Um, most international science engagement realistically is person-to-person, research lab-to-research lab, and yep. doesn't involve a lot of functional government engagement. Uh, but the first and the third would be um, the job tended to split into two different kinds of roles. One, I was asked to do things. I did about a dozen major reviews, many of them quite public. So, one, I was asked to do specific tasks. And the rest of the time, I made things up. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what Great. do you do? What do you do? Yeah. Uh, but, but you're trusted in the role. I didn't 
just bake up things for the fun of it, we developed through my office really important things such as a science policy fellowship program mm -hmm. where we took early career researchers and working with departments across the Australian Public Service, set up a program to parachute them in for a year. That gave them an opportunity to think about whether they wanted a different career path compared to what they were on. It also gave the public service a fabulous year from each of those young people, yeah. uh, bringing their insights, research analytics and data analytics capabilities. Interestingly, a substantial fraction of them, or majority, tended to want to stay on with the Australian public service after they'd had a year in the role. So we started that as a pilot program, ran it for three years, and I was delighted that towards the end of my final year, uh, the secretaries, that's the chief executives of each of the departments, uh, meeting in one of their regular board meetings, uh, approved it as a permanent hmm. capability called the Science Policy Fellowships Program in the public service. Um, on the education side, um, I initiated the development of a website called the Star Portal, which is kind of like a dating website or more realistically like realestate.com, right. which, which puts providers of extracurricular activities in touch with teachers, parents and students. And from the student or parent's point of view, you can really go onto it a little bit like realestate.com and save a query. You know, I'm looking for things that I can do on a weekend, I'm, I'm especially if they're female-oriented in computer sciences, and I'd love to do face-to-face -face ones, and I live in Wollongong, and Dad's willing to drive me 120 kilometres on a Sunday. Right, yep. All right, and then it'll ping you as things come up. So a variety of things like that that we were very pleased and I was proud, pleased to do and I was proud of. Um, but really the biggest and the most high profile type of activity was either the speeches mm. or the um, projects. I gave, my, my office counted it up, I gave, up, gave nearly 500 presentations of some kind. They could be as small as a round table meeting with no notes, talking to 10 people in a boardroom type circumstance to major public speeches. I gave about 100 major public speeches, which we ended up compiling into a book called The Finkel Files. You can find that on yep. the web. Yep. Um, but the, the, the deep dives were the projects mm. that I was asked to do. I could go through them with you, Shane, depends <laughs> on what your, your, your well, audience's interests are. But in a sense, that meant that as well as being chief scientist, I was chief engineer and chief troubleshooter. Yep, I bet. Now, one of the things that we have to do is move on to uh, the reason we've got you on today, which is this new book. And and I, I have a funny feeling. I've started. You know, I've read a, a portion of the book. It was only sent to me uh, Friday, so you know, I got through a little bit. Uh, it's um, it's an interesting read from my perspective because it, it felt a lot like my childhood in many regards, aspects of it. But it refers to, and I'm, this is where I think I, I one, once upon a time I must have agreed to pay forward a favour. But I I believe your older brother is Ron Finkel. Yes. Correct. Yes. So back in 2000, I ran an event um, with a, a business partner at the, at the uh, Melbourne Town Hall for a whole of researchers learning how to commercialise technology. And your brother gave a talk for me free of charge. So now I have to return that favour 20 years later and talk about your book. Um, <laughs> I, think I will it, pass that on to him, Shane. Pass that on to him. It was, very, it was very kind at the time. I remember I was just starting in that area and it was very kind to, to give me his time for free. But um, you've been working with Kim Doherty on one of these amazing... Aussie STEM stars books and these are my understanding these are designed specifically for for kids around the age of sort of 10 to 13 
to sort of tell the story of some of our iconic, you know, personalities in science and and what they went through, you know, during the what got them into science and so forth. So, what what was that like putting that together with Kim? It's it's essentially the story of your life. Well, that's right. So it's more than just the uh, years as chief scientist. The uh, Dingo Press is putting together a series of books on uh, a number of Australian scientists, as you said, aimed at young young people, 10, 11, 12 and 13. So it's a, it's a little biography. Mm. Um, and it's the series is the STEM stars. Um, gosh, it's, it's such an eerie feeling having a biography yep. written about oneself. But Kim was a delight and she made it so easy. So just like we were talking before we started this discussion, uh, Shane, that um, Zoom has transformed our lives in the last year and a half. So Kim and I met many times by Zoom and she just wonderfully walked me through my life. She's a mm. very experienced writer. She was the editor of Women's Weekly yep. and many other things and yep. also some kids' websites. Um, and she has an amazing idea to, uh, amazing ability to just draw incidental little things out of you during a discussion and then put them together. So when I got the first drafts from her and, and um, helped to obviously edit them, uh, but the work is all hers. I thought, gosh, this kid's interesting. I wish I had a life like that. <laughs> now, it's, it is actually correct. It's factually right. correct. But she's got this ability to build uh, dramatic tension into mm. just issues in life and sort of set the stage, well, I'll, you know, she leaves something hanging like an explosion in a chem lab and then comes back 20 years later mm. to say, well, what impact did that have at a choice that Alan made later on? And I'd never connected my life together in those ways. I'd never thought about the pathway in the way that she so clearly drew. And at the same time, she's managed to make it easy to read and I think fun to read. Yeah. Oh, look, it's fabulous. And I think that there's a couple of points in it that I, you know, I reflected on that, you know, at the start there, you, you, you talk about, you know, one of your friends having an amazing Encyclopedia Britannica. And I, I remember having that exact same experience as a child growing up in the West of Melbourne and, and having friends through school who were, you know, in more affluent areas and, and some, you know, seeing that first time what was in that big encyclopedia you know sort of group of books and going holy cow that's not what i have um and just just seeing you know what was possible and, and being able to access some of that was phenomenal but it was a special feeling to go to someone's place and be very young and grab an encyclopedia britannica and lie on the carpet for mm. hours and hours and flick through the pages and i don't think that there's any equivalent in the modern world Mm, yeah, it's 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 a different feeling, and the, there's something about um, having access to information that now I think we we do take for granted a bit. Whereas you know back in the day when when it was was less um, you know in in everyone's homes, it was was something that was a, a point of privilege. Um, you know, we didn't all have access to it. Now I, we've only got a couple of minutes to go, but I, I just also reflected on your you know where you started, and a big it sounded like a big part of your interest started with the the moon landings, which um, was a phenomenal thing. We've interviewed uh, Gene Cernan on this show, the last man to walk on the moon, but of course you you started your interest with the first two that were walking on the moon. Well, that's right, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin, and I have been privileged to have met Buzz Aldrin back in 2006 at a conference, yep. and uh, that was around the time that I had co-founded Cosmos magazine, magazine, and we'd managed to get Buzz Aldrin to agree to be on our advisory board, and I met him in that context, and that was an extraordinary privilege. He's quite mm. a powerful personality. But 
I grew up in the 1960s um, devouring the magazines mm. that described the, um, the, Apollo, the space program. It started off with the Mercury, then the Gemini, then the Apollo, and I'd get National Geographic and Scientific American that have these glossy spreads, and it just enthused me. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing stuff. Alan, I think uh, we, we, we should just tell people one more time, the title of your book is, um, is wait, I'll get you to do it. It's Australia's Chief Scientist, 2016 to 2020. I think it's not the most yeah. exciting title. Well, it's actually Alan Finkel. Alan, it's got your name at the front. front. It's got your maybe name the Alan Finkel part's yeah, exciting, I don't know. But it's part of a series called the Aussie STEM, star, uh, yep. STEM Stars. Yep. And, um, look, it's it's a great read for, for the young folks. Um, it's very easy to read. There's, lot, you know, there's nice bits of dialogue and so forth in there. I found it really easy to get into. into. It's worthwhile getting, getting it out to the kids if they're interested. And I think one of the points there is that you don't need to end up in a job as a scientist to make use of science knowledge and that's one of the things I, and in your program with all the political positions i think you know positions in in, in departments is, is a part of that ellen i do want to say that thanks so much for being our our chief scientist for those years um your name was always somewhere where it wasn't hard to find and we we very much appreciate the efforts you've gone to and your continued efforts to keep us thinking and keep us pushing the boundaries in the direction they should be going thanks so much for talking to us today and good luck with the book Shane, thank you very much and good luck with your continuing uh, communication of science and excitement with Einstein at GoGo. Absolutely, my pleasure. Folks, we are almost out of time. You've been listening to Einstein at GoGo. Remember, folks, stay safe if you're in lockdown. Get yourself vaccinated as quickly as possible and until then and after then, make sure you continue to mask up and do all the things that are necessary to keep us all safe. I'm Dr Shane. We will chat again next week. Hope you'll join us. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.